Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came to the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Again, this is the inerrant Word of God, superintended and inspired by the third person of the Trinity. This is the Word of God. It is His unvarnished truth preserved for us. Please be seated. Let us pray. Fathers, we return our attention now to this passage that explores the magnificent riches of the superiority of the new Adam through his victory, wherein he has proven so great a benefit to those who belong to him, in stark contrast to the progeny of Adam who suffered from his failure. Help us to plumb the depths of these things that are set forth here for our understanding. For we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. Forty years ago, I was <clears throat> teaching a college course in theology at a Christian school in Massachusetts. And we came to the section of theology called soteriology, which is that dimension of theology that focuses attention on salvation and how it is acquired. And part of that course involved a brief uh, excursion covering the so-called famous five points of Calvinism. The five points that are summarized by the popular acrostic TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, which stands for the fairest flower in God's garden, in sharp contradistinction from the Arminian flower, which is the daisy, where you pluck its petals saying, he loves me, he loves me not. <laughs> but Calvin didn't summarize his theology by five points nor did he think that the essence of Reformed theology could be reduced 
to five points because Reformed theology, as evidenced in our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, is far greater in scope than those five specific points that are called the five points of Calvinism. The reason why they arose to a certain notoriety was that there was a Reformed institution in Holland where a few professors led by Arminius registered a protest against five specific doctrines of historic Reformed theology, and their action of protest was called a remonstration. And this remonstration earned these gentlemen the title remonstrants because they were remonstrating. And what they were remonstrating about were those five peculiar points within historic Reformed theology with which they disagreed. The controversy led ultimately to the Synod of Dordrecht in which the protests of the remonstrants were condemned along with the Arminian doctrine that they were now espousing. So, flash forward then, fast forward to my experience 40 years ago in teaching these five points to students in a classroom. I started at the beginning of the tulip with T, which stands for total depravity. We looked at this briefly when we looked at chapter 3 of Paul's letter to the Romans where he spells out in great detail the extent of human corruption. And I had about 30 students in this class, and I explained the doctrine of total depravity to them, showing them that sin is something that is not simply tangential to our existence. It's not a simple marring or blemish that's on the exterior of us, but sin penetrates to the very rodex, to the core of our humanity despoiling us in our bodies, our minds, our wills, and every aspect, rendering us in a state of moral inability. So much are we captivated by this bondage to sin that we no longer have within us the moral capacity to incline ourselves to the things of God. Well, I labored all of that for these college students, and at the end of that section of T, I asked for a show of hands. I took a little straw vote to see how they were doing. And I said, how many of you are persuaded of this doctrine? I said, your grade's not dependent upon whether you agree with my teaching here or not. I, you have to know what it is, but if you don't agree with it, you know, that's okay with me. You won't suffer at my hands. You may from God's, but that's the risk you take. But in any case, how many of you agree with it? And there was no hesitation at all. Every hand went up. And I said, now you're sure, yes, you're sure that you're sure. They said, yes. So I went up into the left-hand top of the blackboard corner, I wrote the number 30. And then I wrote a little message to the janitor, please do not erase. And then we broke for the weekend, we came back the following Monday, and I started in on the U of TULIP, unconditional election. And when I got through that and asked how many believed, they were well, quite a bit of attrition. I had to erase that number 30 and diminish it to like 25. Once we got to limited atonement, there was wholesale uh, abandonment of their convictions. 
But I said to them, you know, if you really understand the T of total depravity, the rest is simple. The rest is QED. It's automatic. If you really understand that doctrine of total depravity, even if the Bible didn't teach unconditional election, you'd have to believe it. If it didn't even teach limited atonement, you'd have to believe it. If you didn't believe irresistible grace, you'd have to assume it if you really understood the nature of our fallen condition. Uh, there's a reason why I wrote a book called Willing to Believe, in which I examined historically the various positions where the church has struggled over the doctrine of original sin. As I mentioned to you the last time, virtually every church in history has confessed their belief that there is such a thing as original sin. However, when we begin to define the content of original sin, the depths of original sin, that's when the controversies emerge. And so, in that book I examine the position of Pelagius, semi-Pelagianism, Augustinianism, Luther's view, Calvin's view, dispensationalism, Arminianism, and the various arguments that go along the way. And so, I'm, I'm warning you. I mean, I wrote a pretty large book on this subject, and that's why it's going to take me a little while to get through this. I just can't just rush through this. It's too important. Now, further background before we go back here to the text. The last time we were together, I spent time explaining the competing views and theories of how we are related to Adam's fall. Remember, we explored the doctrine of realism that argues that the reason why the Bible says that we all sinned in Adam is that because we were really there, that our souls preexisted our births and our bodies, and that we were actually present, alive and well, back in the garden, and we sinned there together with Adam. And I talked about various nuances of realism, and then rejected that in favor of the doctrine of federalism. Now, we can so focus our attention here on our relationship to the fall of Adam and Eve and to our born sinful nature, the nature that we enter the world with, that we can miss the context of what Paul is talking about here to the Romans. Remember, chapter 5 is not a dangling participle hanging out here all by itself with no relationship to what came before it and what is coming after it. What Paul is laboring here in chapter 5 are further critical implications of the doctrine of justification. In a real sense, the whole epistle of Romans is Paul's explanation of the full-orbed significance of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And in here in chapter 5, he is giving us the contrast between our state of ruin that has been brought about through Adam, through one man's sin, one man's transgression, one man's offense. The whole world is plunged into this radical condition that we call original sin. But through another man's obedience, we are justified. So the contrast here is between Adam and Christ. And it all has to do 
with justification. Further background, if you don't mind. Ten years or so ago, as I've already mentioned, the evangelical world was shocked by an initiative that was called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, where very well-known leading members of the Christian evangelical community joined forces with the representatives of the Roman Catholic community, declaring their joint effort in combating what we call common grace issues, the issue of relativism in the culture, the issue of, of uh, the destruction of marriage and of the family, the issue of uh, abortion and so on, which historically Protestants have always argued that it is a perfectly legitimate thing to join hands with people of any theological persuasion in those arenas of what we call common grace ministering to the very basic human needs of people, shelter, health, and so on. However, in this document, it went beyond this joint activity in the arena of common grace and declared to the world that these people shared a common faith in the gospel, which I was called by the press the day that this thing was released, and they said, what do you think of that? I said, I, this is a total betrayal of the Protestant Reformation and of evangelicalism. And along with John MacArthur, Alistair Beggs, Jim Boyce, and several other evangelical leaders, we publicly protested against this document because we saw in it the compromise of the gospel of justification by faith alone. I remember getting a call from Alistair Begg in the middle of all of this, which is a very unpleasant time, very painful to me because it involved breaking ranks with some very close friends and comrades. I got a call from Alistair and he said to me, R.C., he said, this is the hill that you have to be willing to die on. And I laughed. I said, thank you very much, Alistair. It's so nice of you to pass the ball to me on this. Uh, and you're going to be up there in the stands cheering as I rush up the hillside. I was, I was just kidding, of course. It would be no greater honor than to die on that hill of justification by faith alone. But that concern provoked the second ECT uh, article in which People said, well, we all agree that faith is necessary for justification. But then at the end it said there are other matters that still need to be discussed, such things as imputation. And I responded to the architects of that particular document, and I said, look, if you don't have justification by faith alone, you don't have the gospel. And if you don't have imputation, you don't have justification by faith alone. Well, now they were horrified. They said, well, we can't do anything to please you. You keep raising the bar, moving the goalposts. I said, I haven't moved anything. I said, since the 16th century and since Paul wrote Romans, it's very clear, as well as when he wrote Galatians, if you don't have sola fide, you don't have the gospel. And absolutely essential to justification by faith alone is the doctrine of imputation. 
Now, you may be sitting there tonight and saying, look, that's fine for you theologians to worry about dotting the I's and crossing the T's, but why can't we just all get along? Why can't we embrace a Rodney King theology and not be exercised about these minor details? This minor detail of imputation is the article upon which you live or die, in which your eternal life is at stake. That's why the theologians get exercised about it, and woe betide the theologian who doesn't get exercised about it. It's just too important. I was just talking to somebody the other day, and they were asking me, and they said, as you grow older, they be careful not to say that as I grow old, they say, do you find that it's easier to, to tolerate more error in the church than when you were young? I said, well, I'll tell you this, that I have learned over the years that the more you study the things of God, the more theology that you are engaged in, the more you begin to realize the difference between those things that are essential and those things that are livable errors that you can get along with. And I say, as long as I've lived so far, I'm not ready to give up on the deity of Christ and negotiate that. And God forbid that I would ever negotiate sola fide, justification by faith only. And if I'm not going to negotiate that, I'm not going to negotiate imputation. Now, here's where I'm going with this. <clears throat> After the first two editions of ECT, those of us who were opposed to the initiative met with those who were involved in it, and I brought forth the proposal. I said, what we really need now is another document called Evangelicals and Evangelicals Together, where we need to meet at just and keep just among ourselves, not with the Roman Catholics, but among ourselves as evangelicals and say, let's assure the evangelical community what we believe in, that we, we haven't negotiated the gospel. And so with J.I. Packer and other members of the committee that were involved with ECT, we met for over a year and wrote a document called the Celebration of the Gospel that had about 30 affirmations and denials in which we agreed on what was essential to the gospel and denied any kind of errors associated with that. And then we had a celebration at the CBA convention in front of 6,000 people, introduced this document, and then I wrote the book that was the commentary on it called uh, Getting the Gospel Right. Now, it was interesting to watch what happened in the theological community, particularly in the evangelical world, in response to that document of the celebration of the gospel. Because in the affirmations of the, and denials which I wrote the working draft, so I know what the authorial intent was in it. There is a statement in there that I made sure was in there, which says that imputation is essential to the gospel. And what happened in the evangelical world was that all these guys were willing to say, we believe in these articles of affirmation and denial except for one. Get rid of that term, imputation. Because there's this growing movement with the new perspective on Paul, 
that has been pervasive throughout the Christian community, even the evangelical community, that denies the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to us as the grounds for our justification. Now, you may not even be aware of this. This may not touch your house or where you live, but I can tell you right now that the church is in flames over this issue of imputation in right now at the beginning of the 21st century where it has not been an issue among evangelical Christians like this since the 16th century. And I've labored this introduction for this reason. There's no place in the Bible where the doctrine of imputation is set forth more clearly and centrally than it is here in Romans chapter 5. And why I labored this point of how we all sinned in Adam. I can find no other way to make sense out of Romans 5 in the way in which Paul says that we sinned in Adam than to understand this assertion putatively, meaning that the way in which we sinned in Adam was by imputation. Paul labors the point that Adam's sin is reckoned and transferred, that is imputed to the entire human race. And we know that he's talking about imputation here because he spends time in this remarkable contrast that just as one man's offense and sin putatively was reckoned to the entire human race, so another man's righteousness in a similar manner was imputed to all who believe. Now, the interesting thing to me is even though there's this ongoing controversy between Arminians and Calvinists and all of that about the extent of original sin, one thing all of these groups agree on is that Adam's sin produced a ruinous effect for the entire human race. And there's no way we can avoid the thrust of what Paul is teaching here in Romans 5 of the consequences of the fall of Adam and Eve. I remind you again of the language that when we speak of original sin, we're not speaking about the original sin. We're not speaking about the first sin. What original sin refers to is the result of the first sin, the ruination and corruption that is visited to the entire human race, that I am born in a state of sin. As David declares, I was born in sin, and in sin did my mother conceive me, that we are born sinners from the get-go. And the fact that we are born in this fallen condition is what we are talking about when we talk about original sin. It is the consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve that is visited upon the whole human race. Now, here's the argument that Paul is making here. He ties this argument of the universal extent of the 
sin of Adam to the whole human race to the universality of death. That's how he argues, and let's look at that briefly again. Verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, at first glance, you may read that and you say, oh, okay, Adam sinned and then everybody after Adam sinned. Adam died as a result of his sin, and everybody since Adam has died because all have sinned. Now, here's where it's important to make another distinction. Now, be patient. It is the prerogative of the woman to change her mind. It's the prerogative of the theologian to make distinctions. That's our business, to make distinctions. And here's an important one. The distinction between what we call original sin and what we call actual sin. Actual sin is when we actually do something that transgresses the law of God. We looked at this briefly the last time, but we're looking at it from a little different perspective this time. That actual sin occurs when I violate the law of God. I am born in a state of original sin, but that baby in the crib, though it bears the weight of the guilt of original sin, does not bear the weight of the guilt of actual sin, because actual sin requires a conscious awareness of right and wrong and an actual violation of law. And that infant in the crib doesn't know anything about the law of God. You say, well, wait a minute. Besides the law that is published at Sinai, that is delivered by Moses, there is still the law that God plants in the heart, and that law that is part of the lex naturalis, the law of nature, that we learn from nature itself without ever hearing about the Ten Commandments. That's true that God does reveal His law in other ways and in other places from the Ten Commandments. But still, for sin to be involved in that, one must have some kind of discernment, some kind of conscious understanding of the prohibition, which we are saying the infant does not have. So until a person reaches whatever that age is that we call the age of accountability, though they are by nature sinners, they have not yet committed actual sin. You follow me? Am I going too fast? You follow what I'm saying? Thank you very much. Well, if that's the case, if there's a period of time between birth and accountability, before a person commits actual sin, why is it that people die? How do we account for babies dying in infancy? Because death is the punishment for sin. 
And if an infant is incapable of actual sin, how is it possible for the infant to die in his crib? Well, again, the only way that makes sense is the way that Paul argues here, that death reigns from Adam to Moses. Before there's any law in the world, there is still sin as a result of the imputation of Adam's sin. Now, again, earlier at one point, I looked briefly at Augustine's treatment of original sin. I'm going to repeat it with a little bit of an embellishment this evening, briefly. In Augustine's debate with um, Pelagius, he argued that in creation, before the fall, Adam had two abilities. He had what Augustine called the posse pecare, the possibility or the ability of sinning. The word pecare means to sin. We get the word impeccable for somebody who's without any stain or blemish. We talk about little sins or peccadilloes, all coming from the Latin root pecare, which means to sin. And so Augustine said, in creation, Adam and Eve were made with one ability. They had the ability to sin, the posse pecare. But they also had the ability to not sin. They weren't fallen. They weren't corrupt. And Adam and Eve had the true power to resist temptation and not to fall into sin. So they had the posse non pecare, the power or ability to not sin. You with me so far? Now here's the little additive. Looking at it from the perspective of mortality and death, Augustine argued this way, that just as Adam and Eve in creation had the posse pecare and the posse non pecare, they also had the posse mori, M-O-R-I, and the posse non mori. That is, they had the ability to die. They weren't created immortal. They could die under certain circumstances. But death was not necessary to our original parents because had they obeyed the command of God, they would not die. So they still had the ability to live forever. The posse non more. So you see they had these twin, twin abilities. The ability to sin, the ability to not sin. The ability to die, the ability to not die. After the fall, and what we're getting at in original sin, is that Adam's progeny lost the posse non pecare, the ability to not sin. Since the fall, no human being has the power within himself to live a perfect life. Nobody can live without sinning, just as nobody can live without dying. So the Augustine said, after the fall, the curse of the fall is this, that we're now in a state of non posse, non pecare, where it's not possible for us to not sin. That's difficult because it's a double negative. It's not possible for us to not sin. And likewise, we have the non posse, non mori. 
that we have the inability to not die. What Augustine is explaining here is our basic humanity. Now, when you go to heaven, and when you have your full glorification, then you have the non posse pacare and the non posse mori. You won't be able to sin, and you won't be able to die. And that's what we're looking forward to. But that was the situation before the fall and after the fall. And Paul is arguing here that because of Adam's sin, not only does sin become universal, but death is universal as well. Why is that so? Because the guilt of Adam is reckoned, counted, and imputed to the whole race. We're dealing here unassailably with the doctrine of imputation. The doctrine of imputation in its worst of all possible manifestations. The imputation of the guilt from one person to all whom he represents, which leads us to this ruination of our present estate as fallen and corrupt sinners. But in contrast to that, this imputation in the best of all possible worlds, the imputation of somebody else's righteousness to us, which again, beloved, please don't dismiss this as theological technicalities. This is the very essence of the gospel that somebody else's righteousness counts for you. You see, if you get rid of imputation, then you have no basis for any hope of standing before the judgment of God. Because you either stand before God's judgment with your righteousness or with somebody else's. And if I have to stand before God with my righteousness, which righteousness the Bible says is nothing but filthy rags, I have no hope. Take away from me the imputation of my Savior's righteousness to my account, and there is no good news left to the gospel. I'm on my own. And what I can bring to the table is not enough to escape the wrath of a holy God. That's why give me the imputation of Christ or give me death. I'm happy, proud, honored to die on that hill. Now, there's another issue that's, that's tightly related to this issue of imputation here in the ongoing controversy of our time. And it has to do with what is called the covenant of works. Some of you know that historic Reformed theology often goes by the nickname of covenant theology. That usually in contradistinction from the modern uh, theology called dispensationalism. And dispensationalism divides up redemptive history in seven different time frames and seven different ways in which God judges people. And they want to rightly divide the word of truth, meaning you divide up the Bible into these seven different time frames instead of looking 
at the structure in which the Bible itself is written. And the structure in which the Bible is written to us is the structure of covenant. It's all through the Scriptures. You see the chirotic moment, if you will, in the Old Testament when God makes a covenant with Noah. After he destroys the world by the flood, God promises never to do it again. Puts his rainbow in the sky. Then he calls Abraham out of the land of paganism, out of Ur of the Chaldeans and Mesopotamia. And he said, I will be your God. I will make you the father of a great nation. I will bless you that you may be a blessing to the whole world. And in the framework of that promise, there's a covenant that God makes with Abraham. And then God calls himself a people after Abraham's covenant is passed on to Isaac and Jacob. And then Jacob's descendants are called into bondage, and God brings these descendants of Abraham together and adds to the covenant He makes with Abraham by giving, him, giving them the Decalogue and the blessings and the curses that follow the law. And God makes a covenant with David in His house to promise to restore His kingship forever. Over and over and over again we see covenants being established by God in the Old Testament. But the first one we meet is what's called the covenant of works. The covenant that God makes with Abraham, excuse me, with Adam and Eve on behalf of the whole world in their time of probation where He sets before them the promise of blessedness that they may eat of the tree of, of, of life, live forever if they're obedient. But in that probation they are told that they must not touch from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil lest they die. And so what happens to Adam and Eve in the garden that Paul's talking about here is all surrounded with the structure of an agreement or a promise of destruction or blessing depending upon what they do, how they perform. That's why it's called a covenant of works. And in the covenant of works, it said if you work righteousness, you will live. If you work disobedience, you will perish and all of your progeny with you. Is that clear? That's what is meant by the covenant of works. Now, in recent years, people have raised a protest against that and said, wait a minute. Reformed people talk about the covenant of works and then after that the covenant of grace. They say, isn't it true that any covenant that God ever makes with His creatures, even in their pre-fallen condition, is a gracious promise? God doesn't owe His creatures any promise of redemption whatsoever. So the fact that He enters into a covenant with Adam and Eve is a matter of grace to begin with. Well, that's true. But that's not the point of the distinction between the covenant of works and covenant of grace. The point of that distinction is this that the covenant of works was failed by Adam and Eve. And when that failure took place, God did not destroy the human race, but He added a promise to the original covenant of redemption that would come through the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent while His heel would be injured in the process. And the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
the promise to Moses, the promise to David. All of the rest of the promises were promises of God pouring out His blessing upon people on the basis of His preserving and redeeming and saving grace. Now, I say to people, and this confuses them, so you have to be alert now. The Bible teaches us that justification is by faith alone. And yet I say, on the other hand, keep in mind that ultimately there's only one way anybody will ever be saved in the presence of God. And that is through works. Did I hear him right? Did he say that the only way people will be saved will be through works? Yes, that's what he said. It's not whether we're going to be saved through works. The question is, whose works? Whose works? Through the works of the one who alone fulfilled the terms of the covenant of works. That's why I labor the point all the time that it's not just the death of Christ that redeems us, but it is the life of Christ that redeems us. By one man's disobedience, we're plunged into ruin, but by one man, the new Adam's obedience, we are justified. To say that we are justified by faith alone is simply shorthand that says we are justified by Christ alone. Justification by faith alone means that you can't make it on the basis of your works, but you have to make it by trusting in somebody else's works. What Luther said, again, was an alien righteousness, a righteousness by w that is extra notes, that is outside of us. Our works will never save us, but Christ's works are perfect. And they meet all of the requirements of the covenant of works so that the new Adam arrives in history to fulfill what the original Adam failed so miserably to do so that by one man's offense, the world was plunged into ruin. By another man's obedience, we are justified. Do you see the connection there between the covenant of works and imputation? If you take away the covenant of works, you take away imputation, you take away the significance of what we call the perfect act of obedience of Jesus. I may have told you this a few weeks ago. John Piper's latest book, Contending for Our All, he gives a biographical sketch and analysis of three great Christian leaders. I commend this book to you. First of all, Athanasius. Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world, the hero in the Arian controversy of the fourth century. Secondly, the Puritan John Owen, who was a great, great Christian and great theologian. And the third person that, uh, that Piper chronicles in this book, contending for all, is Gregorian Machen, who was the founder of Westminster Seminary and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, brilliant mind, left Princeton Theological Seminary when it became corrupt. When he was still relatively young in his early 50s, I believe, Machen 
I was asked to preach in the Dakota somewhere over Christmas break, and due to his frail health, his colleagues at the seminary urged him not to make the arduous journey to the Dakotas for this preaching mission in the dead of winter there in the Northwest. But uh, Machen did not listen to his friends, and he boarded the train. He was alone. He went to the Dakotas, and there he became sick, and indeed sick unto death. I think I might have mentioned this to you, but the, uh, the day died. He sent a telegram to his dear comrade, John Murray, and the telegram read, Grateful for the perfect, active obedience of Jesus. On his deathbed, G. Gresham Machen was absorbed with what Paul's talking about here, the perfect righteousness of Christ that is ours by imputation. Without the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, there is no justification. And without justification, there is no gospel. So that Paul is laboring in this section here how central Christ's life of perfect obedience is the ground and the only possible ground for our salvation, which comes by imputation. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious gift it is to us who have no righteousness of our own to boast that you would impute to us the perfect righteousness of your dear Son who obeyed your law for us. Father, we still tremble at the warnings of the law, but our tremblings are put to rest when we look to the gospel. We look to Jesus, to what he has wrought for us by his obedience. Thank you for the new Adam who redeems us.